thought about a three. Now drives to the hoop and slams it home. Robinson auf Gaffney und er trifft zu seinem vierten Dreier und Berlin geht mit einem Dreipunkt Vorsprung. Ten seconds. Seem is going to take it himself. Seem off the glass and in. What's up, everybody? I'm Tony Gaffney. And I'm Payne Siva. And you're listening to the Ball Around the World podcast. So a couple of weeks ago, Peyton and I had the pleasure of sitting down and chopping it up with a former teammate and great friend of ours, Carl English. Many people know him as Captain Canada, or better yet, one of Europe's most lethal scorers and shooters. A year off of his book release uh, last November, Chasing a Dream, Carl sat down and opened up to us about everything that makes Carl who he is today. From tragedies as a young kid to the stardom across Europe, Carl is one of the most charismatic, funny, loving guys you'll find in a locker room. We hope you enjoy hearing about his journey as much as we did. Before we get into that, P and I wanted to touch base on a few current events that we felt necessary. What's going on with uh, EuroLeague and over there in Berlin, P? Hey, what's up, everybody? Yeah, so this week on the EuroLeague Roundup, for us, if you don't know, we had to postpone a couple games due to COVID-19. So a couple of players on our team tested positive for COVID, and unfortunately, I was one of them. I found out the day before my birthday that I tested positive for COVID. So I spent my birthday, my big... 30th birthday, big 3-0, in quarantine with COVID, laying in bed. But for the most part, if you don't know, I, I sound a little tired now, a little, little beat up, but pushing through, um, getting better and better every day. Luckily for us, you know, we were able to reschedule the games in EuroLeague. That wasn't always the case at the beginning because at the beginning, they were just, you know, if you couldn't play, you lost automatically zero to 20. And, you know, shout out to ELPA, you know, the EuroLeague Player Association for going to bat for us and, you know, saying that's that's not right for the players. And getting the rule changed to have us be able to reschedule the games and that helped us out big time. Also, we had to reschedule our BBL Cup games because we tested positive before the we had a chance to play against uh, Braunschweig and Bonn. So, you know, thanks to the BBL for allowing us to reschedule our games and to put the players' health first above all. So that was really big for us. So right now we just, uh, our whole team had to quarantine for the last, when you listen to this, for about two weeks. Even the guys who tested negative had to quarantine, just, you know, the government wanted to make sure that everybody was safe, everybody was out of harm's way and not putting others into harm's way. And with this, you know, COVID, it, it can hit at any time. I tested negative at the beginning. A couple of days later, we had a retest and I tested positive and had one of the highest counts. So it was, it was pretty scary at first to kind of hear that news just because of everything you hear out about COVID um, and, you know, I didn't know what to really expect 
I started feeling chills. My body was feeling a little weird. You hear so many people that say they have non-symptoms, non-symptoms. A lot of athletes always say non-symptoms. So when I found out that I had COVID, I was like, oh, I'll be fine. You know, I'll be non-symptomatic and just do what I normally do. But, you know, I it hit me uh, pretty hard. And, you know, my body, like I said, my body was feeling weird, had some like weird sensations, uh, didn't feel well, sitting in bed, headaches, uh, stomach stomach problems and you know it was nothing to play around with it was do you feel do you feel yourself getting better I feel myself getting better day by day it's you know it's a process yeah and you know like I said it's it's tough because I I never experienced something like this you know a lot of people compare it to the flu or you know say oh no it's just the flu but I mean I've had shortness of breath. I had the flu before and usually that goes away in one or two days. You kind of break your fever and, you know, get better. Right now it's kind of been different for me. So I've just been trying to take it day by day, just, you know, trying to rest as much as I can and pretty much chill. Uh, That's all you really can do right now for it. Try to, you know, I've been quarantined. So I've been staying in the house, staying away from people and yeah, it's been tough. So like I said, I've been having a little burst of energy throughout the day. I've been getting better and better, but it's still something scary that you just don't know what's going on. And when you have it, you know, I joke around just because that's the kind of person I am. But, you know, it's definitely something that should be taken seriously. And, you know, I'm thankful for the club, uh, for Alba and the government for just putting our health first. And, you know, they've been doing everything they can to test us, making sure we're okay and you know, that's the only thing we can ask for as players right now. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's funny because until it really hits home, and you know, a lot of people, yeah, there's 45 and a half million cases worldwide, you know, tragically one point, I think it's 1.17 million people in the world have lost their lives, which means millions and millions of people and families have lost loved ones it's a scary thing. You know, we still, we're still so far from out of the woods with it. Uh, In America alone, there's been nine, almost 9 million cases, 228,000 deaths. And, you know, obviously in a lot of countries, we have the winter coming right now. uh, So it's, it's going to be a little bit tougher to social distance, but you know, we can't stress enough that if you can do anything to Peyton and I talk all the time and, you know, we're both in, in great shape conditioned really well we don't wear masks for ourselves i mean yeah we wear it for to to protect ourselves but we do it for our loved ones for our parents for our children for our wives if it can save one life then what's the issue with putting a piece of cloth over your face if if social distancing while while out in the streets or out at the supermarket can save one life why not just do it you know it's and until it really hits home and it happens to somebody that you know and someone you love it's maybe it's a little more difficult to take it as serious as as we all should be taking it because uh, it's very real it's something we still don't know everything about we don't know what the ramifications will be even five years down the road from now we don't know if what the impact of this disease or this virus is going to have on us so you just got to do everything you can to stay safe uh, again, I, we can't say it enough. Just please wear your masks and, and just take care of your loved ones and 
take care of others if, if you don't want to wear it for yourself. Uh, it's definitely a scary thing. And uh, Peyton, did you happen to catch the World Series? The uh, games, was it game six of the World Series? Yeah, I saw, I saw the uh, player get pulled in the eighth inning for yeah, testing Justin positive Turner. for COVID. Right. Yeah. And which is, it's just crazy that, you know. Right. <laughs> Someone like Justin Turner, about. he made it the entire year without without testing positive and in the eighth inning of the deciding game of the world series he's pulled from the game got brought into the back told he tested positive told you know he has to go in isolation for uh, 14 days or until he tests negative uh, he retested i believe that test came back positive as well and then obviously you know there's mixed emotions to seeing him on the field and mixed feelings about seeing him on the field after the game ends, taking pictures and kissing his girlfriend. It was just, yeah, I understand all the different uh, mixed feelings, but at the same time, you know, we give as athletes, we give everything we possibly have uh, to win a championship and to have been told that you test positive in the eighth inning of a side game. I don't know how I would have felt to be honest with you, I probably would have kept my ass in the locker room, but that's just me. Everyone else is there. Everyone, everyone's different. So right. that was a I mean, really tough situation. Yeah. Like you said, as an athlete, you train your whole life for this one moment right. that very, very few people get a chance to experience. Right. And that's just like, as a basketball player, you're in game seven of the NBA finals, fourth quarter with, with three minutes to go, you're getting ready to check back in the game. They come and pull you and pull you to the side. Like, hey, no, you tested positive for COVID. You can't go back into the game. Man. And you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> What's yeah. going on here? So for me, as an athlete, you know, I've heard the arguments of different sides right. talking about he was already around his teammates. So he's already exposed him. And, you know, it's kind of like that what you don't know won't hurt. So I feel like once he found out, like then you're like, okay, now I know, like I'm exposing these people. Now I'm putting these yeah. guys at risk. Like if he didn't find out until after the game, like, you know, oh, well, that's that's the, yeah, way, it is. That's the way it has to be. But like, once you know that yeah. you have something, then, you know, it's your responsibility to right. put others health in front of yours and safety in front of your own so I feel like in that situation that was kind of a, a messed up thing like yeah I, I would love to you know celebrate be part of that experience but it's your duty at that point to you know take a back seat and put everybody else's health in, um, in front of your own but I saw the picture of him kissing his girlfriend right. and I that said this is the most American thing <laughs> I saw some of the memes too that was awesome. Uh, right. We're better than that, though. <laughs> yeah. So, again, we just, Peyton can tell you, you all, first and foremost, it is not fun. Do anything you can not to contract this virus, not to give it to anybody, not to give it to any of your loved ones. It's just not worth it. If you can avoid it, do it at all costs. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, just continue to try to listen to the doctors listen to scientists you know they're figuring it out they're 
it's the reason why they get paid the big bucks to figure all this thing, these things out. But wear your mask, uh, try to protect others and do what you can to prevent the spread of this virus. All right. Absolute facts, Peyton. So anyways, as most of you know, and as Peyton, I know you know, next week we have arguably one of the most significant elections in the history of our country for numerous different reasons. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. A lot of people on both sides of the fence feel really strongly about certain beliefs and certain fundamental feelings. And on November 3rd, election day here, we have it once every four years. We wanna also tell everyone to do their best to get out and vote, cast those ballots, do whatever you possibly can to send in your ballot, if it's a mail-in, if it's an absentee ballot from across the pond, if it is waiting in line at your town hall while social distancing for a few hours, do it. Personally, I've looked into ways to volunteer and drive uh, people that don't have access to cars to the polls on Tuesday. I've been going through the process of signing up to do that just because it's that important to me as well. But we can't stress enough that, you know, we have a chance to, as Americans, we get a chance to dictate the next 20 years of our country, the direction of our country. So no matter what side of it you are on, we can't stress enough to get out there, use your voice by casting that ballot and sit back and watch what transpires in the next week. Our obviously voting numbers are hitting record highs right now. And it's great to see because, you know, obviously Peyton and I both feel that we are extremely fortunate to be Americans. We're proud to be Americans. We're proud of where we, co where we come from. And it's a democracy and, and we, we are able to, to, to decide the direction of our country. So again, please just everybody get out there November 3rd and cast those ballots if you haven't done so already, because this is one for the ages. Pete, did you uh, get a chance to send in your absentee ballot? Yes, actually, I did for the first time. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, we actually were able to send in our absentee ballot. Great. Hopefully it makes it there, but I felt better about, you know, voting yeah. and my absentee ballot, so... That was big for us. So. Good. It's not easy to vote from overseas. That's for sure. I did it when I was, I believe I was in Spain when President Obama was elected. That was the first time I had voted from overseas. And yeah, it's a good, definitely a good feeling when you're using your voice and voting for what you stand for. Yeah. Like I said, I sent it in. Now, if it gets there, it gets there. If not, <laughs> you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, in my mind, it felt better to actually do the vote, yeah. which I haven't in the past. So, yeah. But was, everybody, we're going to get into our good friend, Captain Canada, who has a amazing, 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 amazing story. You know, we love Carl. He's an amazing person and a well-spoken guy. And Carl likes to talk a lot about himself as you will find out and we love yes. him for that <laughs> he does. Carl, carl is great and we love him so listen to this we weren't able to get other people on this week i've been sick and we 
we were waiting to release this interview of Carl. So this was the perfect time to get it out there for you guys. We got a really special guest with us today, joining us from his home province of Newfoundland, Canada. Fresh off his book release, it's November, someone that epitomizes what our podcast is really about. Through his tragedies and his triumphs, the game of basketball has literally brought him all over the world. A great friend and a former teammate of both Peyton and I, an even better man with a lethal jump shot, Carl English. Carl, man, we really appreciate you joining us today. Hey, guys, it's, uh, it's awesome. Like I, I was telling you guys before when we were chatting, I've, been, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts, but I was super excited to do this one just to catch up with you guys again. And, I mean, some, uh, some of them, two of my favorite teammates that I've played with over, over the course of 20 years. So it's, uh, this will definitely be one of my funnest, I guarantee it. Hey, what's up, Carl, man? It's always good to see you. How's everything going, buddy? Everything's great, buddy. I hope you're working on your jump shot over there. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I think I'm ready for uh, five spots Tim makes now. I've been been practicing with Marcus Erickson, who's a pretty decent shooter, and I uh, think I'm ready for the big time. He's not half bad, but you can warm up with him, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Carl, man, I haven't seen you in a while. How's the family doing, man? How's my guy, Ryder? You know, Everybody's good, man. Ryder's getting big. He's uh... – He's almost your height now. He's 5'3", and he's <laughs> warm. Uh, yeah, he's a big boy. My girls are good. They're growing like weeds. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a while. What was it, 2016? We were in, in Alba together? Yeah, man. Yeah, so, so it's been a while. Flies, man. Back then, he was probably around 5'2". Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he was, he was, he, remember he came over just to see a few games because I left Tenerife and then went to Alba, so we couldn't get them into schools. Um, but yeah, no time flies, man. He was only what he's here in a few months. He'll be 12. Wow. He was only eight at the time. So yeah, no time flies. That's good, man. That's good to hear everybody's doing good, man. Miss those guys. How like, are you guys? How are you guys? Any more kids? I have two. So yeah. Addie and Emmy, they're five and three. It'll be six next week. That's awesome. Um, you know, it's, it's good, man. I have a boy. You got to have a boy. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll try one more towards the end of my career. For uh, another time. So. Now, now Pey- Peyton's going to end up with six before he has his first boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, girls are different. Girls are girls are so much more creative than uh, just always dancing and singing and so much love, so much love. But I mean, boys are rough and tumble, so it's it's uh, it's great. Both of them are great. I just I just had my first girl. I got a boy and a girl now. She's three go. months. Are you done? Did you get snipped? You're done. Come on now. <laughs> now, if the wife wants more, I'm going for more. But uh, she's a sweetheart, man. She was born in Israel. I have two, both born in Israel. Uh, awesome. she, mel- she melts my heart, though. That's awesome. Awesome. Anyways, so what you been doing since your uh, playing days? Are you officially, are you officially retired yet? <sighs> if we, if we want to say that, yeah. I mean, I just got I – got, I, got, uh, I had another surgery last year. So when I came back, so I finished up here in St. John's. And body, the rest of it felt good, but my, I had a freaking injury on my uh, thumb. So the guy was saving the ball and whacked my thumb and I tore all the ligaments in that. And then towards the end of it, I was playing because it was weird, not weird playing at home, but it was was like so much more, I felt more accountable and I had to feel every, I was selling out the arena, but people were just coming to see me because 
you know, I played all over the world, but this is where I'm from and it's a real small town. So I felt more obligation to play and I was playing, I was playing through everything. So I really damaged the ankle and I went, basically I went to Toronto to get it repaired to try to get another couple of years because the rest of me felt great. Um, I went in and got that surgery, got it all cleaned up and removed a bunch of different things. But at the end of the day, it never, uh, it never turned out well. So um, I got to go for another surgery again now when this COVID is over. But yeah, I would say, yeah, I've never, as much as I want to, I, I don't even know if I'll be able to run again. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I see that you uh, obviously released a book this past November, uh, Chasing a Dream. And, it, you know, obviously I've been able to read quite a bit of it. And it's really gotten me to know you more as a person and, and the man behind, you know, the, the, happy-go-lucky, friendly, always smiling Carl English that obviously everyone loves and gets to know, but... Uh, a nice haircut, Carl English. Fresh. Always fresh. <laughs> trying, trying. Do you guys remember when Ingen used to cut my hair? <laughs> I remember you tried to cut your hair. <laughs> remember? I was in there giving a quick uh, lineup, and Ingen came in and he smacking me upside the back of the head like he was this Turkish guy. Oh, man, that was hilarious. No, I, yeah, I released that book. I mean, again, when I came home, everything kind of changed because of the impact I felt I was having on our youth here. I mean, it's, it's different. Like I'll take you guys way back. So, um, Tony, obviously Tony, thanks for reading my book, Peyton. Uh, I read your book, honestly. Yeah. After I waited eight months to receive it from a publish publishers. I sent you a copy. I bought it on iTunes, so it's fine. But you did you did receive the copy? No, but I got an Apple. But I sent I sent five of them. You're in? Are you in the book? No, I haven't read that far. Am I am I in the book? All right, maybe you're in the book. I don't know. If you never read it, I should probably go get the book, but I don't want to leave and crash the internet. So um, <laughs> the uh, no. So I'll I'll just take it. How about we just take it all through and then. I don't really want to talk about St. John's yet because it kind of just goes on a full front of me returning home. So where it all started. So I guess the biggest thing for me was kind of defied me for, for so many years is I lost my parents when I was five years old. So we had a, we had a house fire. Um, me and my five brothers uh, escaped. One of my brothers jumped from the second story. Uh, Kevin was my, second oldest was he was down around the fire and he got out and then my oldest brother got me and my youngest brother out and cross and down and, and out of the house um two things i guess later on and, and a bit of that was when i was doing the book i discovered more but my dad died from the fire and what the fire brought to him because they they were right next to the door but they were trying to put it out um everything they had was there and i, I think they knew we were out so they were trying to fight it but I remember speaking to my mom, but I found out later in life, I think when I was like 22, 25, that um, the hospital killed my mom. So there was two mistakes made. So she had a lot of a lot of smoke inhalation. So I remember talking to her after the fire. So she was fine, just some burns and things. Um, a lot of oxygen, so or a lot of uh, smoke inhalation. So the first mistake they made at the hospital is they put they put too much oxygen to her brain. So um, to release all that, then you have to put a trachea in through here. And when they put that in, they put it in wrong and, and killed her. So on her, on her death certificate is different than my dad's, but I didn't find that out till later on in life. So 
kind of like you relived it all over again. So basically then at that point, I was only, how old did you say your kids are? Five, four. Five and three, yep. Five, so I was five. So I was your oldest kid's age. So imagine what she'd feel like now if, if you and your wife weren't around. So that's that's when it hits me when I look at my youngest daughter and when I look at my kids when they were that age. So I went to live with, we all got separated. Um, Bradley, my second oldest, went to live in St. John's with my mom's sister. I went to live with my other mom's sister. And then three of my brothers went to live with another aunt. Um, so we all got separated in, in different places. We weren't too far apart. Well, Bradley was two hours apart. We wouldn't see him but once a year. Um, my other three brothers, we went to we went to the same school, but that's the only time we'd, we'd see each other until we got a little bit older. Um, I think as a child, you really don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know. I was trying to be tough and you're fake ass tough and you're, you know what I mean? You're, you're dealing with something and you're just so empty. I think what really hit me when I was 12 and 13 and 15 and I just felt like it was, it was me, like there was, there was some dark times. And Tony, as you're reading, you could see the dark times. Like there was a lot of times in right. there, like, and I, I kind of felt when I went into the book, I wanted people to really know. And I didn't even go in as deep as what it was, you know, cause I didn't want to offend people that were still living that took care of me, but there were some dark times and you start wondering why you and why, you know, and, and some crazy thoughts were going through your head. So um, for me, my childhood, was early defined by that and then I just found basketball I, found, I think I think I was kind of compulsive to the point of like you say this guy like I was just so immersed in it because I think it was the only thing that just made me feel free and it made me feel that just took me away from all the other shit that was going on in my life and no matter what even good moments you want to share these good moments with your parents or even your brothers for that matter. And then obviously when the dark times or the bad moments, you're really, then you just feel like everything is against you. So that was kind of, that was kind of how my childhood was, but then I found basketball and then I just, I just played all the time. And to me, it just made me free and it allowed me to a way for me to express myself and to feel confident and to basically just cut out what I've been dealing with all the other years. Um, the issue was, is that I, I, there was, there was no basketball courts. There's no corner stores. So I lived in a town with 50 people, a uh, little Philly, little fishing village. Our school from grade kindergarten to 12 had 200, 250 kids. Right. So when you're thinking that's probably a class for some of you guys with the schools that you guys went to. Um, so my class up until grade 11, till I left, there was 17 or 18 kids that I went to school with since kindergarten. So I actually, my wife, we went to kindergarten together. Hmm. You know what I mean? We're in the same classes right up through. So um, I started to get decent at basketball. I was just a scrawny kid. And, you know, we go to the city and play people and start destroying them and getting better. But I just couldn't get any, any looks. So in grade 11, I'm averaging 60 points a game, you know, so I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm lanky, really skinny, right? Not jacked like I am now, but yeah, really <laughs> skinny. So I was probably, when I went, uh, I would say probably 6'3", 
and I was 150, 160. But like jumping at the gym and starting to get a shot and handling the ball. So my coach always played me at point guard. So I'd take the jump ball. You were able to touch the backboard at that time? Yeah, yeah. Did you see the cut on my head? <laughs> that's, that's, I thought that was just a receding hairline. No, no, no. That This is the receding hairline. This is the rim. This is the rim. <laughs> Uh, so we uh, we go around and we'd play all these we'd play all these teams we'd play a bigger bigger school team so we were only a small school so I don't know how you guys do it there but we have one a two a three a four a and it depends on your population so we were always one a team one a school because of our population but we would beat all the all the teams in the province so we won all the provincials and things and I just had my mind set on I had my mind set on getting a scholarship. So I played for our province here, a provincial team, but there was something came in the mail and it was about a kid in Ontario that went to George Washington. And it was just the middle, middle of Ontario. And I, I told my aunt, I, I want to move there. And I, I was going to move up with, with like a brother to me, but it was my cousin. I had a couple other brothers that were in the area. So I, I fished that summer to raise money so I could go up there and go to school. So I just had my mind set. I was going up there. So I went up to I went up St. Thomas Aquinas in Ontario, and uh, beautiful school, like twenty five hundred people. It was Catholic school. Had to wear uniforms. All this new change for me, but uh, I was supposed to be. You know, I was going up there to play basketball. So I'm up there and I'm tearing that up. But the teachers go on strike. So I'm playing in random tournaments with random teams because of people I met. And I go there and I just, they let me play a game. And like, I went to this one tournament, it was North American Invitational, played against, uh, I think Darius Miles and these guys were in it and some big names. And I went down there with this one team, first game dropped 28. And then the next game, no one on the freaking team would pass me the ball. So I just get the rebound, go down and shoot, but no one would pass me the ball. So anyway, the teacher run strike, but I met, uh, you guys will find this story funny. I met a, I met a, an AUA coach up there and I played on this team with with the they brought over some Russians and different guys that uh, was crazy there was like seven or eight uh, NCA athletes that went on it like Ben you remember Ben Easy that played over in Italy played in Siena or Treviso played he played everywhere over there, there was I'm not few, that old yeah I know you're not that old I, Ben I, Easy I, or Ben Easley Ben Easy played Washington remember big Jack guy he was African, but he came way of Russia. But I mean, anyway, he's a little older than me too, so let's not get. Yeah, that. he was. Yeah, I'm a little. Don't hey, don't let's not talk age. <laughs> he, uh, so anyway, we go up there, and I go down in Jana Finch. Um, Jana Finch is is like the roughest neighborhood in Canada, and you guys got to understand at this point. I think I saw, and don't take this obviously any which way. I, I think I saw my first colored person when I was 15 years old. So I go down in Jana Finch and I'm the only, I'm the only white person in the building. And we had to go through the metal detectors to get in. And I'm, I'm looking at the guy like, where the hell are we going here? Like, I'm scared shitless. He's like, don't talk shit. Don't say nothing. Don't even talk. He told me, don't even talk to your own teammates. Like, this was my first game. So my own teammates in the warm-up line were talking shit to me. They were like, can you hang ghosts? What are you doing here, ghosts? Like, and I'm in Jana Finch, which is, you go, is tough, real tough, toughest neighborhood in Canada. So anyway, a few plays go in, and i done this little shimmy shake that I get Peyton with, and I took off on the seven-footer, and I crammed on him. 
and whole gym shut down. They started throwing chairs. They tried to pick me up. I ran under the table, a hide, like the whole gym shut down. And from <laughs> then on, I was kind of accepted in, in the culture up there. So from there, I went. Dunk, huh? On a seven-footer. Hey, go back and check the highlights, kid. <laughs> I wish I had. You know what's crazy? I wish I had a smartphone back when I played. <laughs> I wish there was. I wish there was internet. You know, there was no internet. <laughs> Yo, Peyton, weren't you talking about some mixtape he, he came up with back in like nineteen? I'll tell you that one. So that's that's what's coming up next. <laughs> so we go. So again, I'm I'm playing all these things. And so I go to, we had this video recording room. So I'm trying to get recruited. So I went up there to get recruited. So I went and got, I was working. When I first went up there, I was framing houses just to get money to pay for school and stuff. But I had some money left over and I went and got a hundred VHS tapes. And I had a buddy of mine come and record me in the gym, dribbling and crossing and shooting and just doing a bunch of dunks. And then on the end of that, I put a grade 11 championship game. I had like 50, 60, whatever. Did you ever score? How many points did you ever score, Peyton? Yeah, I've been there. All right. So, <laughs> like so anyway. I, I scored go, before I came to, to Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, go and, uh, I go and send that. So I go the, what are the guidance counselor gets me all the addresses. I go and I go and make my own like resume. And it's like a 1996 dunk champion, SAT score, you know, just making some shit up just to try to get their attention. And I send this tape and I went and I sent it, I sent it to Louisville. I sent it everywhere. I sent it to like 120 schools, the ones that I was like, I'd love to play. And a lot of them were getting back to me and they wanted to come see me play, but I, the teachers were on strike. So then I went, I went in towards the end of the year with that AUA team, I went to to play in the North American Invitational, and I, I played well, but a lot of people didn't have no scholarships left. So then, enough for nobody knew me for ABCD camp or key camp at the time. So I went was in New Jersey. We all got in this big old van, and we drove down to which Percucci ran uh, Atlantic Cape camps, and it was in the same same area as all those camps. So I went and I was MVP of that camp, and then all these schools came over. I guess they got wind of this kid over there that nobody knew about. And they all came over to watch me play in a championship game. And I tore that up. And then I had, I had a bunch of offers from there. But a lot of people wanted to put me in a prep school for the next year, like the big ones. But at that time, I had Davidson, which wasn't a big school, Creighton, Hawaii, Notre Dame, like, you know, decent schools. And I was, I was thrilled. But my mind was made up to go to a prep school in Pennsylvania. That's where Syracuse was sending me to. But then I went down to a tournament in New York and I was playing against all these guys going to Virginia and stuff. And again, we won with the team we had and I dropped like 50 something in championship game against these kids that were going to division one. So I was like, F this, I'm, I'm going to go to other things. So then I went out to your native land, Hawaii. I went out there on a recruiting trip and I just fell in love with it. And long story short, I, I signed university of Hawaii. So that was kind of, that's kind of a nutshell of me coming from nowhere, a town of 50 people to just chasing a dream to just get off the island and try to play. It was never about playing pro. It was about trying to get an education and get a scholar scholarship because obviously I'd never been able to afford to go to school. So, you know what's, you know what I, I found really, really uh, interesting about your book, Carl, is so many people can relate to 
dealing with tragedies, maybe not to the extent of the things that you dealt with at such a young age, but even, you know, Peyton and I were talking earlier and we both through, we both went through a lot, you know, yeah. from, I don't know if either of you guys know this, my mom, my biological mom, she's not my mother anymore, uh, was arrested on prostitution uh, and drug charges when I was seven. I found okay. out by reading it in a newspaper. So, you know, Peyton dealt, has dealt with a lot of, a lot of tragedies in his life. And we all looked to basketball as like our safe haven. It was our way out. It was our, our thing to see through all of that. So we can for sure relate to those kind of the way you use basketball. And I'm sure a lot of people that haven't read your book yet will, will be able to relate to it in that sense and see how they used it to their advantage and, and, you know, kind of let nothing stop them from getting what they wanted. But I feel, again, that's the same way I look at it. And I, I've, I've taken approach in life since an early age is to never, never judge anybody. And to always try to try to give them my best version because underneath their facade, you never know what they're dealing with or you never know what, what they dealt with in the past. And I always say, like, we don't have, like Newfoundland, we don't really have a hood per se. But when you grow up in a fishing village and you have no money and you're fighting for food on the table, it's a different kind of hood. You get what I'm saying? Right. And I always feel that everybody have their own situation that they're trying to overcome. And yeah, it mightn't been as, as dark as mine with what I, and it could be worse. So, you know what I mean? I, I think you got to find whatever that you're passionate about or whatever that thing is and, and just really immerse yourself in it to the point that it, it basically saves you. Basketball saved me. You know what I mean? Right. So that's where it was at. And then for me to get a, a scholarship at the university of Hawaii, you know, it was, it was the right step in the right direction, you know? And but, I think that's very important, kind of what Tony said, and you said also just about not letting those tragedies affect the way that we live. Because like Tony said, we all have been through something. You know, me growing up the way I did, uh, I talked about it numerous times, just about my father and, you know, what he's been through with drug addictions and in and out of prison, uh, my brother and sister, uh, the troubles that they went through. But when I was younger and going through it, I didn't realize what I was going through. I thought it was the norm. So it wasn't until I got older that I realized like, wow, that was actually basketball did save me and get me out of a lot of trouble. Uh, per but, se. When but when you're in it, you feel it's normal. Yeah. I mean, you know I, mean? I wasn't, like you said, I wasn't the only person dealing with situations like that. All my friends had similar situations. So I thought it was the norm. I thought it was no one's, you know, father was doing father was doing what they were doing or their mother was out doing this uh you know they had to find a way to feed themselves in certain situations so i thought it was a norm but when you talk to other people they're like no no child should have to go through that and i'm not saying like i was in the worst of situations but it wasn't prettiest i wasn't you know had a silver spoon but you don't you don't realize that now till you overcome and you give your kids what they have oh yeah they're spoiled (laughs) I, I guarantee you all three of us would have a conversation and we'd look at each other and say, well, shit, am I giving them too much? Or, you know, they got to work for us. You know what I mean? So it's a different, it's a different yeah. type of struggle, you know, now it's obviously it's a good situation to have, but I find, I find me wanting to give my kids things that they don't need. And, oh. you know, cause it was just like, I never had it. I'm like, well, I want them to have the things I never had, but anyway, so I, I'll keep going. So from Hawaii, um, my first year I, I redshirted because my ankles were trashed. Um, I was just walking to campus and I'd just be twisting them, but I redshirted my first year and I had surgery on my ankle 
And it allowed me, to be honest with you, it allowed me to adjust to college. It allowed me to adjust from being away from home. So I left from Newfoundland, which is the most eastern point in North America, to go to Hawaii, which is the most western point. I, I honestly couldn't pick another further school. But um, I loved the island when I got out there. I love the coaching staff, so I thought, and you know what I mean? It was just, they tell you everything you need to hear to get you there. So I get out there and, you know, I, I redshirted my first year. So my second year, I was more, I was a true freshman then, but I was, you know, after putting on some weight, you know, I was on a full regimen, a full schedule. I was studying. I felt, you know, I felt I was ready for what was about to come at me, but the coach seemed to not want to play rookies he just didn't trust them so I went been I went there the whole year been there everybody I feel most of us have been there we've all had that coach that you know just don't trust a player don't like if I ever become a coach I think every player has so much to offer I think the true coaches get that out of that player you know what I mean it's not about your system it's not about yes you want to have a system to an extent but true good coaches will find a way to let those kids flourish their natural environment but anyway so we keep going we're in and out I go in score 10 points went and played the next four or five games I was literally wanting the chance for school and I'd be tearing up these guys in practice and I'd just be every day like I was putting in five six hours a day before practice after practice and to be honest with you, I was just preparing for what was coming next you know because I've been through so much I wasn't these little hurdles weren't going to stop me now so they basically, the seniors went to him and, and went to the coach and was like, you've got to give him a chance. So the last 10 games or something, I probably averaged 14 points a game, but was playing point guard. You didn't know that, did you? So I get like five, really? six assists. Oh, yeah, I can dribble, yeah. Yeah, you know I got the shape. How many turnovers a game are you averaging? I know you had 14 points, but. No, no, no not, not like I did in Europe. I didn't average many turnovers. So anyway, we go, you guys are clowns. We didn't know, uh, <laughs> So we went on and we go to the tournament. We're only like seven, eight seed, right? So we go in there and we kind of take everybody by storm. We kind of hit at the right time. So in the finals, I end up scoring like 32 and I got MVP of the WAC championship. And we went to the NCA, which was huge. And then it was like this whole new stardom. You know what I mean? Like I was all of a sudden, I was the man. You know what I mean? And I'm, I went from two months ago, I'm going to transfer schools, get me the F out of here to now this is my show. Coach wasn't too happy about that, but like I, I put in the work, I put in the time. So then we went to the tournament, which was Tony, what school did you play at? UMass. 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 You're used to it as well. But when you play at these big schools that you guys played at, it's, it's to show every night you play. When you play at the University of Hawaii and then you go to the tournament, well, now it's the real dance, you know? And that kind of got to us as a team, not so much me, but it got, to, it got to my teammates and stuff. And everybody wanted to be the man because it was their time to shine. And because you're not there every night, that's why I think the ACA team, you know, the big schools have the advantage because they're there every night. Like the ACC, every night's the show, you know what I mean? So anyway, so then my next year, I'm a sophomore and I'm, I'm playing, you know, I'm dominating for, for out there in the whack. I solidified myself. Everything kind of changed at school. Now people are, now people are helping me out. Now people are, I went from 
sneaking into the my freshman year, sneaking into the media room and the stand sheriff to make phone calls to my family to someone giving me a cell phone, call whenever, or do whatever. You know, so a lot of things changed. You got a lot of new best friends, I take it, right? I had a lot of new best friends, you know, a lot of people. And then they even went as far as they got my younger brother out and he went, they brought him out because they knew, learned more about me and my family. And, you know, I got my brother into the high school there and he scholarship. He went to a Hawaiian school, but the head people pulled some favors and got him in there. And anyway, he, he, he got homesick and went back home after like three months. But I stayed there. We had a great set. We made the tournament again. Um, everybody said I should have entered the draft that year. But to be honest with you, I didn't feel – at this point, I still didn't feel I was ready or, or even that was possibility, you know. But the whole time, I was fast-tracking. I was fast-tracking to leave school. So I graduated. My next year, I went as a junior now. All those seniors were gone. One guy went to the NBA. I – Next year, I led our team in scoring. I was first team all, whatever, but I was also uh, All-American academic. I didn't know that, did you, Peyton? Um, never would have guessed. Never would have guessed. <laughs> so everything was, everything was chipping. Everything was going well. Um, they had me on projections of drafts and things. So I graduated, in, I graduated my junior year, and then I decided to enter the NBA draft. Um, probably shouldn't have done that I probably should have it, it's it, the thing the thing with me was and the thing back then was there was no way the internet was just coming on board there was no smartphones there was the flip Motorola's burp, burp. there was none of this you know what I mean there was no one that kind of went before me I wasn't close with Steve Nash I wasn't close can of basketball wasn't on the rise I was kind of going down a path that was unknown none of my family could advise me and I trusted a guy that helped me when I was in Toronto, you know, and I guarantee you, every one of you guys have a guy that you trusted and you shouldn't trust them. Right. I guarantee it. If you don't, well, more power to you. So I'm entering the draft process and it's kind of a catch 22 because I go down the road of doing all the workouts, but I don't hire an agent. Mm -hmm. Right. So I do 13 workouts in 17 days. Some of them went well, some of them not so well. Uh, went out to, at the time, Chicago, did well out there. Um, held my own. My stock was still good. Every projection had me. The highest ever was was like 21, all the way down to 38, 42. But I was kind of like ready to try. But this same guy convinced me like, we got to hire an agent. We got to attack the media point of it to let people know you're out there. And from a business standpoint, I understand that. I get that. But the other issue I had was all that, if I went back to school, all those trips that I took by NBA teams would have had to be paid back to the shady NCAA. Mm -hmm. So it was like 70, 80 grand. American, I don't have two nickels to rub together. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. my family don't have that kind of money. I don't have, you know what I mean? And the school can't step up and pay this, you know? So it was like, it wasn't like I could do these workouts and it's not like it is today where you can, the players association will give you an idea where you're going to be drafted. And they're kind of spot on because they contact all the teams 
and the teams do an assessment on you. Mm -hmm. So everything's kind of changed after things like that happened to me and other players. So, um, so anyway, we decided I took his advice. We entered the draft. I turned down agents like Steve Nash's agent, Bill Duffy, dumbest decisions I ever made. I went with a no name agent out of uh, Toronto that I felt was taking care of me when I was in school. And when I say taking care of me, my senior year of school or my junior year, my last year, whatever the hell it was, somebody was putting into an account $150 for me. So over $1,500, $1,500 dollars, I went with this no-name agent in Toronto because I thought they were putting this money. Now, $1,500 or $150 a month at that point in my life was a whole lot. It was like 20 grand, you know, it was like 20 grand to me a month. You know, because I had nothing. I had no, you know, I had no support from home. The American students could get the pill grant. Did you guys get the pill grant? Yeah, I got the pill grant. I couldn't get the pill grant because I was Canadian, right? So there was no, there was no funds. There was no money around there. So we're going, we're going on this. And that's why I selected and I based with that agent. So we go. Now, we was go, this a um, certified NBA agent? Yeah, he was certified, but he had a hockey he had a couple of hockey players, but he wasn't in, he wasn't in the NBA realm yet. I got to ask you, what's the story I hear about it being some real estate agent? Because I've been looking for some property down in Newfoundland <laughs> and I was going to see if you still had his number. You know, it's, a, we're all a few million dollars richer now, so we can joke uh, about that. We all yeah. messed up our NBA shot. Mine wow. wasn't from a real estate agent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, again, I told you I'm a trustworthy guy. Yeah. You know, when, when Coach Khaki tells me he's going to play me, and he does, and I believe he was going to play me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's just one of those things. So anyway, I go ahead and I enter. I enter the draft, and these same agents decide to throw me a party. So I'm at the Indian Motorcycle Harley-Davidson store downtown, and I'm the next big thing since Steve Nash, right? Because there wasn't a, lot of, wasn't a lot of NBA guys at that time. So there's probably – 30, 40 TV crews all across the country. And you got to think all my family flew up. Anybody I knew was there. I'm freaking agent takes me out to get me this suit. I'm in a fresh suit. So I thought I'll tell you that in a minute. So I'm in this fresh suit and I'm there with my, my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. I'm there with Mandy and you know, I'm going through, you know, I kind of, I was kind of getting itchy around towards the end of the first round and passes all that you know i'm beating sweating every time they david stern comes on all the tv crews shine on me and i'm just like this is okay this is this is not looking good then my phone starts ringing and it'd be teams i'm like yeah i don't care where i play man i'll play for anybody i'm ready to go they're like no carl you're not understanding we got no picks left we want to play for summer league and they're like uh i'm like we well, just call my agent they're like no he's we can't get him his phone is out so this freaking agent don't even got his phone up. You know what I mean? So I'm there like my brothers are losing their mind. They see all the hurt in me. They take this guy in the bathroom. They're ready to like, you know, do him in. Like it was, it was bad. So we went through 60 picks at the time. So for 60, so three hours I had to endure that. And every pick the cameras were on me in front of hundreds of people. And I'm just trying to hold back the tears. So then I did my interviews afterwards and I leave and he's taking me to the hotel. And as I get into the car, 
my pants ripped from the crotch of my pants right to the top of my asshole. And I'm there like, can it get any worse tonight? You know what I mean? So um, quickly got over everything that was going on and just felt, let's get back to the hard work. Lost it on these guys. Let's make it happen. So I went and done some mini camps. I went to Indiana for a week. An interesting story with Indiana. They, they told me, the head guy, Donnie Walsh at the time, told me I was his pick. And I said, I kind of had this chip on my shoulder then because, you know, you go through the process and not only did I lose the NBA contract, I had like three, four million in endorsements in Canada, like General Mills, Air Canada, General Motors, like Chevrolet. Like I had, like I told you, I was the next thing, you know, I was marketable. I was, you know, coming from tragedy. Like it was that kind of, you know, that story that everybody wanted to hear. All, all contingent on making the NBA, right? All, those- all contingent on making the NBA, right. you know? So I lost all that. So it was kind of like my whole world turned upside down. So then we go, we go and I go to a mini camp there and I kind of call these, kind of call these bluff. And he's like, no, the day my granddaughter got hit by a car and I wasn't in the war, war room. He's like, I want to sign you. I'm like, listen, I'm going to Minnesota. If you want to sign me, you send my agent a contract. This was a Friday. So I went to Minnesota on Monday morning. They sent me a contract and I went back to Indiana. So I signed a partial, I think it was hundred, hundred grand the first year and two fifty the second year, which at the time was most money I've ever seen. Yeah. So, you know, I was all on board and everything was going great. I was training with Isaiah, training with the guys. And then Larry got the job which I thought would be good, but then he fired Isaiah and brought in Rick Carlisle. And then Rick Carlisle brought in Anthony Johnson and Kenny Anderson, so we went, and another guy. So we went from having 14 guaranteed guaranteed players to 18, and someone had to go, and then they signed Jermaine to the the max, 120 at the time. So then it was a luxury tax issue and everything, and then I ended up going to the D-League, and I spent two years in the D-League, uh, first year was now this was the D league when it was six teams. Don't get it twisted. Six teams busting 18 hours playing everybody seven, eight times. Uh, I was first year in South Carolina, second year in Florida with the late great Dennis Johnson. Uh, I'll tell you one thing about the D league. I was shooting piss out of the ball now. And, but they had this rule last three minutes of each quarter and the four quarter three pointers counted. So, like, I'd get on there and I'd shoot threes, but they wouldn't count. So, my percentage was, like, 56%. And, you know, but, like, you'd have less points. So, if I hit three-pointers in the first three, four minutes, so I started, then I'd sub off, and you come back on. So, you're missing crucial time. So, like, you know, I was making four a game, but probably only one was counting. You know what I mean? So, it was really yeah, weird. I never heard of that rule. You know, yeah. Dude, experiment with crazy rules always changing rules but i um i got a call i was about to go to orlando so i got a call they called how i was doing blah 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 we want to sign you for the rest of the year so i was like they were sending me tickets uh on the way driving to the airport packed up my bags driving to the airport and they called me when i was at the airport so me and my agent were flying i changed agents so we were flying and meeting this was when i started working with justin zenick and andy miller so we, we started, we moved in and we were on the way to the airport to meet in Orlando, signed a contract. And when I was in the airport, uh, they said, uh, Otis Thorpe, you guys remember that name, 
blew out his knee in practice and they had to sign a big guy. So they're like, oh, we're going to keep monitoring So that's when I told them, I, I'm done with this roller coaster. Let's go overseas. So um, I started my journey then, and my first year was in Italy. So I went to Virtus Bologna. And needless to say, it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a journey. Because <laughs> you're coming with that, like all of us, that first year that you're over, you're hating life. You're pissed off that you're not in the NBA. You think everything else in the world sucks. And you're there and you're like, you got this huge chip on your shoulder. Well, I was no different than anybody else. And I had yeah, to learn we about, talked about that. Remember uh, yeah. when we first came over to Berlin, we had talked about how did it feel not to make the NBA and to come over to Europe. You know, yeah. I talk about this a lot. I think a lot of people who don't, you know, feel like they failed. They feel like they're a failure just because they don't understand the European game. They don't understand that, you can make a really nice living for yourself, but you always, and with today's world, with social media and everything, you know, everyone wants to throw it in your face, or you're going overseas, or you're doing this, and you can kind of take it a certain way, and then you're going to constantly chase that NBA dream and constantly feel depressed, not there, or you're letting that get to you where you can make a damn good living playing in Europe and playing in EuroLeague. So I remember when we talked about that, that was one of the things that, really stuck out to me about one of our conversations was, you know, you can't let that deter you from creating a niche in Europe. You know, you can't let that deter you from making the most out of what you can and allowing basketball to kind of take you all over the world. 1000%. And that's the, that's, that's what took me that year to find myself, you know, and I had Zari Markoski, which was, Croatian coach and he was tough he was crazy I'm not gonna lie good good guy but really tough really tough coach and I remember losing it on me one day like I was at 28 on the road and we lost and he just lost his mind because I stopped the ball but I didn't press her to press the ball when the guy got backdoor cut but he got backdoor not me but he was like I would kill his mom. I just start all the people that he would have killed and all the people, things he would have done and all the stuff. And I'm just like, where in the F am I too right now? And, and then I just started, you know, I, I had some great teammates with David Blutenthal, you know, legend overseas, yeah. Ken Lacey from New York. I had Marco Millage that played in the NBA, Christian Dreyer. Like I had some great teammates that, you know, just helped me get through it. And after that, my next year I went to, Croatia and the funny thing was was Zari recommended me for that and I thought he hated me so it was like I was like you serious he recommended me but like he knew how hard I worked but he also you know was doing what was best for his team at the time there so for me just trying to find that niche and then my next year I went to Croatia and I was played in Zadar but I was on the Adriatic Sea and I had no idea where Croatia even was I was like I remember saying to Mandy, we were married then. I remember saying, like, where the F are we going to go? Like, we were trying to find it on Google and trying to find it where we're ending up. And to be honest with you, it was one of the nicest places I ever played. But I went there and I immersed myself in the culture. I immersed myself with my teammates and just everything about Croatia and basketball. And that's when I had my most success. And I learned that lesson early from, from Italy. And like you said, the, the money was great. You know what I mean? And then you're getting bonuses and then you're getting, you know, 
every time you win, you were getting money. And so that league, that year in, in Croatia, we played in the Adriatic League, which was a step below the EuroLeague because you had, you had teams from the best teams from each country all the way around. And I kind of shined in that. So I led that league in scoring. I got MVP of the Croatian League. And I kind of had a bunch of EuroLeague offers. But at that time, I decided to go to Spain because Spain had basically, it was very, very tough to get in Spain. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody told me. So the people that I get advice from, like Maurizio Giardini, who runs Fenerbahce right now, he was coaching our, our involved with our national team. So he was kind of advising me. He's like, you got to go to Spain when you can get in Spain. So at the time, there was the only two Americans without passports that were there were me and Louis Bullock, and he was playing for Real Madrid, another legend over there. So um, I went to Gran Canaria and tore that up. Um, top two, top three in scoring. Club had a lot of success. Um, just started to find my role. Spain was up and down. It was more more fluent. I started to find myself more. I started getting NBA options to come summer league. But it seemed like every time I had something, i get freaking hurt. Like I was going into Houston. Houston wanted me to go there. They were all over me from watching me in Europe. And then I was supposed to leave on the Thursday. On Tuesday, I blew up my ankle. I went in there anyway. And they had me sign off on all these things because they said you're not physically able to play. And I was like, I'm playing. I'm like, I'm dying for this opportunity. I'm playing. But like I blow by the guy and then when I make my next step, he just run past me again. I'm like, I can't do this. You know, my ankle was like that big. And like the trainer was telling me every time their head guy is like, he's like, Carl, you shouldn't be on this. And I'm like, these opportunities are, are what I dream of. You know, this is what I work for. So it was always like every time something like this had happened, even in Zadar, they, they, I had a, a pull muscle in my leg. and I missed one game the whole year. And that game, um, Mike Dunleavy and the head, tra- or the head guy for the L.A. Clippers came to town to recruit Ante Tomic from Barcelona, that big tall guy. Yeah. And uh, to be honest with you, I think I could have played on the leg but I was kind of taking the day to get some rest or the week to get some rest. And then they don't tell me that these people are coming. I look up and I see this guy and I'm there and I'm just like, I'm, I was going to go down and suit up and be like, fuck this. I'm playing right now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, you got to imagine. So he's coming to look at Tomage and here's a shooter. And I like, I averaged like almost 40 against these guys, you know? So it's like in that kind of situation, you could really shine and catch the eye. It only takes, as you guys know, it takes one person, one person to like you and give you a shot. Right. You know? And it, like, it always kept happening to me. So anyway, I go on, I signed back to Grand Canary. I was supposed to go to Barcelona that summer on a multi-million dollar deal, but Navarro decides he doesn't like the NBA and he comes back. So <laughs> then they don't need a two guard. So then I went back to Grand Canaria because my wife was having a first son. And I spent a year there. And then the next year I decided to go, I went to Victoria and I had crazy offers after my second year in Spain, but I'm starting a family. Ryder's just born. I get my wife pregnant again right away. So, you know, it was kind of like, what do we do? So we kind of stayed in Spain, but we went to Victoria and they put together a monster. Like they had probably a $40 million budget and put together a monster with Mirsa Teletovic Myself, Brad Olson, Sammy Fernando, Walter Herman, Tiago Splitter, Marcelino Huertes, like all either NBA guys 
or Eliyahu from, you know, Lior. Tony, didn't you play with Lior? Lior Eliyahu, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like we had Oh, you played in Victoria with him, right? Yeah, and Stanko Barge, I think you played with him. Like, we had we had two teams, that team, two teams. If, if they were both – if you took half, six of each and put them on another team, we probably would have played each other in the final. That's how good – that's how good we were. Yeah, for people that don't really uh, understand your – a lot of – with European basketball – Obviously, Carl, you'd probably say that you had your most successful stint in your time that you spent in Spain. Yeah. Uh, people that don't understand, that is arguably the second best world, uh, second best league in the world outside of the NBA, obviously not including uh, EuroLeague, but it's, yeah. it's an absolute powerhouse. So, I mean, that obviously just tells, tells you, uh, you know, Carl has had a phenomenal European basketball career. But the thing with Spain that... I still feel it's still the best outside um, because you have you have Barcelona, Madrid, and Victoria all with thirty to fifty million dollars budget. Then you have five or six teams then from fifteen to ten. Then you have seven or eight teams from ten to eight. You know what I mean? And now, like that's why I said to Peyton when you're talking about certain teams, like where's your budget? So you know, and you don't have to worry about your money, and you're secure. And you don't have to worry about your safety. So there was a lot of things that made that league so good. Right. Um, um, but that team, we won. We won the championship there. Uh, crazy coach with Dushko. One of the best, but also the toughest coach that I've ever had. Like, we're running. We're still running stairs in between playoff <laughs> series and the semifinals. So basically, if you pull the muscle, you had to go in the back and check your muscle to see if it was torn. If it wasn't torn, you had to get back to practice. So, you know, I remember we'd, we'd start off warming up. We'd start off warming up with a 10-minute sprint. You know what I mean? It's like the dumbest things. But to give the man credit, in the preseason, we'd run – we'd do three days. and We'd run 10-plus 10, 10 kilometers in the morning, and he'd do it as also. He'd run it also. He might come in 20 minutes later, but he'd run it also. So I was always in high cardio, so I didn't mind that, but my body started getting worn down. So right. um, the next year then I went to, to Barcelona, and again, I kind of regained myself, and I was leading the league again in scoring, and I had a stink. So I fell on my wrist, and I had a stink. This was in February. We were starting to find ourselves. We were – this is a juventude that were at the bottom the year before, but we were fifth place, qualified for the King's Cup, which is the mid-season tournament. And I fell on my wrist in practice and we used to tape it up. So we'd lock it up like this and I wouldn't shoot all week. And then we'd let it free in the games in a sense. And I'd start shooting. So I'd, I'd shoot one day before and then shoot. But for six games, I was MVP and I averaged 30 something points. And I think it was because there was something going on there and I just locked in so much. And I was kind of regaining myself. Agents, NBA teams were contacting my agent again. And I just, I, I stopped taking the ibuprofen. I was like, something's not right here. And anyway, when we went in to get an MRI, they put some contrast MRI in it. I was after, I was after losing my ligament was, was ruptured. So I was playing five weeks on a ruptured ligament. But this I was think in Badalona? This was in Badalona. Yeah, in Barcelona, Badalona. So I, I played with that and then I went in. So we found that out on a Saturday and I had basically emergency surgery on Monday so that I wouldn't lose the ligament for good because there's a time frame when you lose the ligament within six weeks. So on the Monday I did the wrist and I actually failed a medical because of my ankle 
in preseason, but the coach wanted me and he saw me practice. I went and practiced. I was like, I'm fine. I said, I look like shit on an MRI, but I'd go out and yes, Peyton, I'd go out and do a 360 or a windmill. And they're like, well, how can anything be wrong with his ankle? I see you laughing. Don't worry, little hot. Don't worry, little fella. There was one dunker. There was one dunker when I was in Alba, and it wasn't you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, so we we did. Uh, I went on a on a Monday. I did my wrist surgery, and I did elective. I cleaned up my ankle and reattached all the ligaments on a Wednesday. So that kind of shut me down for the season and kind of refreshed me. But that took. Again, like I said, I was MVP for the month of February. It put me all on the blink and everybody back on the market of where I, where I should have been. And it kind of knocked me off. So anyway, I went to Sevilla the next year. didn't play so much. The following year, I went to Madrid Estudiantes and I played for Chus Villaretta. And he, he kind of let me free, let me play again. So this is in 2012. I remember that year very well. I was in Badalona at that time. Yeah, yeah I remember. Long, that. flowing Carl English. Yeah. I had the long hair. I came back rejuvenated. And you were a killer, though. I was a killer that year. I led the league in scoring. Um, had a messed up injury towards the end. Uh, this one went and popped out my old AC collicular there. I got hit by jo – remember Josh Aslan? Played Manresa. Big white American. You know him. The name said Brick Screens. Yeah, Brick Screens. So he rocked me on a screen and busted up my shoulder. And I uh, didn't, uh, could have had surgery, but they said it, it'd go 50-50 either way. So I just rehabilitated and I got back. But then a couple of days before the last game, so I was training really hard just to finish the season with one game to show everybody I was healthy because I was leading the league in scoring. So that, that translates to one of two things. Either you get an NBA contract or you sign a million-dollar contract somewhere else. And I, I was after telling my wife, like, listen, we had – Fenerbahce interested. We were talking to Ephes. Barcelona offered me in, in January. They were trying to buy me out of my contract in January. So I had all the powerhouses needing a shooter. I actually think I remember when Barcelona was trying to buy you out of yours because it was talk around the league. It was all over. Like they, tried to, and they were offering me crazy money, but I wanted the second year for security. I was like, I'll take less money, but I just want the second year. Yeah. But, you know, crazy – you know, the money they were throwing at me. And I just wanted, I just wanted to security because I got two young kids. I was like, less money, but second year, it's better for me. So anyway, I tried to get back and believe it or not, again, Peyton, I went up and dunked on someone in practice. And when I landed, I compressed my spine and I herniated two discs in my back. And not knowing it, I shut down about two hours later. And I went into the summer not knowing that damage was done. And it was a pinched nerve and it shut down all my quad. So I literally, and I'm not even joking with you, you know, the machines in the weight room where you lift your legs, mm -hmm. the leg extensions, I couldn't do five pounds. Like tears would run down my face because I could not lift five pounds with my leg. So I started rehabilitating that and it took, it took a while. And then I went with team Canada and I was coming back from that. And then I tore my tricep. So I had like, I had three major career in. So now I have my right shooting, I have my wrist, my right shooting shoulder, and now my right shooting tricep. And I'm just after coming off shooting like almost 50% from threes. So now everybody's kind of thinking like, you know, here's a shooter, but his whole right side of his body's messed up. So it kind of, it kind of, 
we kind of hid a lot of those injuries because I was coming off the, so we hid the tricep and I had like 50 offers, right? Like Andrew Vahe was hiding all like, no, no, he's not going there. No, that's not enough money. But like, he called me, but like, we can't, Russian teams would call it like, oh, we can't tell them it's not enough money. And he's like, they'll throw the bag at you. We just got to tell them you're not going to Russia. So it was like, it was this cat and mouse game. And then I got, I, I came back early from that and I got ready in probably January, February. And I went and finished the year off in Tenerife. And then the following year I went, then now I start moving around because these injuries kind of really hurt my stock. So now I went to Greece. I went to Athens, which was amazing. Um, fans were crazy. I was, I led that league in scoring. So then we go from there. I almost had Olympiacos. I go to Puerto Rico. I went out to Puerto Rico for a stink. And, and then, and then I go to Tenerife. So I'm in Tenerife first. I'm in Tenerife and I went there to replace the guy for six, eight weeks. So midway through that. So in champions league, I was leading the Champions League in scoring, but I was only playing 18 minutes a game. But in the Champions League, they play me, but in the ACB, they wouldn't play me. So when I came, so the other guy was coming back, but I had a relationship with the coach, so he explained everything to me. He's like, Carl, this is our main guy. He's like, I know you're playing well, but he's like, we have to play him. It doesn't, like, I have to play him when he's not playing well. So he's like, if he doesn't play well, you'll get a chance, basically. And I kind of understood. He was, he was a great coach, so I understood where he was coming from. So then Imar obviously coached me in coached me in Gran Canaria, was my GM in Gran Canaria, brought me to Madrid. Is, it was in Alba, Berlin. So he's calling and saying, we want to bring you here because he said we had a great team, but he felt they didn't know how to train hard or how to, you know, to really get to the next step. So it was kind of like a role as yeah yeah coach. that that was that was the problem yeah that's what it was yeah that wasn't it wasn't the coach <laughs> so anyway we go and um, the funny part was is when I accepted that offer I was going home to see my family and get some more stuff when I landed in Canada I had fifty missed calls the guy that I was replacing blew out his knee. <laughs> and Tenerife offered me whatever I wanted to come back. They offered me almost double what you guys offered me. They just now, didn't offer you Peyton Siva. Yeah, of Siva. But what I was thinking, what Imar was telling me was like, all right, we'll go to Alba Berlin. Here's a new market. Alba Berlin is kind of like the pinnacle. Let's go over there. I might play a couple of years there. And you know what I mean? Kind of ride it out at a high-end club. Because, you know, Alba was – high they still are they're high level um knowing now what i know i should have went and said you know go back to tenerife because they keep players they bring you back and they keep you and they stick with you even though you're old they will reduce the capacity and have you for the games whereas most european coaches just want to practice 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 you know what i mean and that's a, a main reason why i keep going back to alba we got a, a new coach in aito and He's uh, Where's Aito from? He's Spain. He's one of the you know one of the best coaches I ever had, and exactly one of those coaches that that my body, although I've dealt with injuries, I feel great. Yeah, like I, I I gained a couple of years back from. Uh, yes, but if you had to have a Serbian coach, or you know what I mean, no shot, no shot. 
you know, it's filled damaged goods and they'll keep, keep pushing you to that limit. And, and I, I had those coaches and I love those coaches. I kind of, because I always trained that way, but they just destroy your body. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So anyway, I end up uh, going to Alba Berlin. Yo and behold, I meet the boys, you know, um, all That's these. The of your life. That was, hey, th- th- we had a pretty good team in the sense of on and off the court. Off the court, we had a fabulous group of oh, guys. Amazing. We you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, we had dealing with injuries, dealing with things. I felt, I felt there was issues in the locker room with the coach. Um, not a bad guy. I just felt nobody respected him. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt, he felt that everybody was against him from all the club. You know what I mean? And I felt he was always so paranoid. Um, and just the way, I don't know. Anyway, but he's back. He's back in Turkey coaching now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so lo and behold, anyway, we, we went through it. I felt we had some ups and downs. I felt the fan support was great. I love the city. Um, it was a real eye opener for me in the sense of other markets. I felt, we'll talk about that later, but I felt I stayed in Spain too long and not realize the other places. Like in each country, there's two or three powerhouses that can pay a lot and they're great cities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, from there then, that was, I went, I went to train the following season. I went to Greece. Um, I was training with Olympiacos, which is top five European club in the world, right? Um, I just went there personally to get in shape, and I wanted to show them who I was because it was three, four years they were supposed to sign me and never did. And I went there, and once they got to see Carl English, not the guy they played against, because I'm different. The guy you play against is an asshole. He's coming at you. He's ready to kill you. Once you play with him and understand that he's a hard worker, he's a good guy, he's a great teammate, well, then it's totally different. See, everybody views you as something different. You know what I mean? So once I got there, they understood that, and I was playing well. So I was like, okay. The role I was going to have was when Spanulis didn't want it to take days off because they really wanted him to play EuroLeague, well, I'll play. You know what I mean? Right. And so they're so powerful that – they only played two or three games in Greek league that really mattered. The rest of the teams, they just walked on by 40. So I was like, well, I'll run on those and I'll be in shape for your league. Cause the numbers, you don't, it doesn't matter about Americans or whatever. So they were just getting ready to sign me and they called me in the office. They thought I wasn't playing the game cause I got a bad Charlie horse. I was like, no, no, I'm going to play. Let's talk about it after the game. During the freaking warm-up, Kim Tilly, you know, Kim Tilly, you know, Kim Tilly. Mm-hmm. I know Tony does. Of course. Um, uh, goes and blows out his knee. So they were like, we got to sign a foreman and we need him now. Like I was kind of playing a role as safety if Spanulas got hurt. You know what I mean? Right. Which was fine for me because here I am getting a chance to play with a EuroLeague powerhouse, crazy money, professional club. I was like, I'll take it at this stage. So then I went back home and there was a team here in St. John's. Never thought I'd play in the NBL of Canada. Owners from New York bought a team in Newfoundland. And I was here and I knew my kids didn't want to go to Europe. I turned down some offers in Greece. I turned down some things in Spain. Kids were at the age now where they're home a couple of years. Ryder was having friends. Kirsten got friends. Um, wife was getting settled in. So I was like, this makes sense. So I kind of used that as leverage, negotiated with them. And I returned home. 
you got to understand it's, it's only a, the Avalon has a couple hundred thousand people. So the arena only holds about 6,000. So there was this buzz. There was only like 600 tickets sold. So then I signed. So all these people that here, they followed me all over my career and I didn't know, but they only saw me on TV playing for team Canada or they only saw me. So to them, I was kind of like a ghost. So um, I signed on a Wednesday by Friday. They were after selling 4,000 tickets. So we go on our first game and I'm struggling because I only got one practice. So I would think I was two for 13. So we go to the last minute, we're down. I hit a three then a drive and we're down two, 13 seconds left. So this league has a lot of talent, but it's rough talent. It's the talent that either they got in trouble, got kicked out of school, got tangled up in the wrong things, but there's some hoopers. Mm -hmm. And it was extremely physical, kind of like I call the jail ball. Like literally, like if we were playing one-on-one -on -one and there was no fouls, we're just, you know, going after it. So this guy comes out, says, I'm going to lock that up, starts hitting his chest. Me being me, I looked at him. I looked at him and the ref. I said, I'm going to cut down here. I'm going to – ball's going over there. I'm going to take you right here. I'm going to push you off right here. I'm coming off. A three a screen right there and I said I'm wetting a three-pointer in your face he's like I'm a lock that shit blah, blah, blah. sure enough I go down push him off whop the three walk off the court the referee <laughs> loses his mind and like all the people in the front row hear this right so everybody hears it so the referee's running down the court he said he was gonna do it he said he was gonna do it <laughs> kind of like you know, because a player like me returning to this league was was kind of like a big deal. Right. Yeah. So, and I kind of got my swagger. Next game followed up with a 32 and a 38. And then all this was building till we came home. So I'm coming home now and the place is sold out. So like this is the first time, like it still gives me a goosebump. So this is playing in front of, you know, my aunt and family that raised me, like all my brothers, all their kids, all my kids, you know what I mean? Everybody, all my friends. It was my high school coach, like it was this big, like almost like a huge reunion. And it was like, I'm not gonna lie, it was the nervous, most nervous time I was my whole career. And like I've played, I've played for Canada to go to the Worlds in front of 25,000 Dominicans that were throwing coins at us and spitting on us and like, you know what I mean? But I was, I was shaken. So anyway, they, they had me coming out to uh, P Diddy, I'm coming home. And the place just went up. Like, I mean, standing up for like 10 minutes. You know, the place was rocking. And these little small buildings will shake. You know, it was like playing in Grand Canary, the one down by the ocean. I was, like, that, those places would shake because they're so tiny. And you put 6,000 people in there, it was incredibly loud. So I walk out on the court. And these guys, like the other team, you know, arrogant people have no clue who I was because I played my whole career in Europe. And they start talking shit just before the jump. And they're like, Who, who's this guy, Kobe? I'm like, you know, <laughs> you're about to find out. So I come first quarter, I just go and drop 18. And I mean, it was the loudest 18 that I've ever <laughs> scored because I was talking that, I was talking it, I was walking it, but I was using all this energy. And then I just crashed. I was like, <laughs> fucking drained right now. Like I, I just used every inch of energy. So, I didn't do nothing else to like the fourth and we end up winning. And then the next night it got followed it up. I felt a lot more swagger, dropped a 
you know, 30 something, but gotten a scrap at the end, you know, let the guy know this is my place. And the whole place went up and like the whole city kind of got behind us. So it was, uh, it was pretty special to come back home. And that's kind of what's for, that's kind of what's for the book because I kind of took, which is funny. I kind of took things that we did there. You know how you guys used to go around or we go around in Alba and shake everybody's hand. So mm -hmm. we start doing that. And then I start signing autographs after the games. So I would sign every night on the home games. I would sign and take pictures for like an hour and a half, two hours. So like everybody signed, like it kind of just grew my legacy here and grew my stardom and kind of solidified everything from being here and my triumph from, from tragedy to triumph and just returning back home and putting all that together. And it, it, the big thing was it gave me a platform to help so many people. It gave me a platform to help so many families. Like you were saying, you don't know what people go through. So I've been now I'm a spokesperson for different groups. I do so many of these podcasts, as you can tell, this has been pretty fluent because I've done it and I speak to so many kids and I speak to so many groups and it gave me a platform to help so many different people, like a lot of boys and girls clubs. And I do camps now for different groups. And it's been real special to basically overcome what I've overcome, but then also to go away and have the success in Europe to basically come home now and bring it all back in a full circle, I kind of couldn't ask for couldn't ask for much more. Yeah, man, amazing story, man. I learned a lot from reading part of the book that I bought on Apple. <laughs> uh, but it's always great to hear from you, man. Like you said, you never know what someone's going through, so it's always good to hear what you said. Putting everything together. You know, coming home, you know, from dealing with tragedy, traveling across the world, you know, what our podcast is about is ball around the world is you played in so many different countries, man, so many different places, use basketball to see the world, which a lot of people don't get to. You know, I'm going to end with something for me. Obviously, home means a lot to you. So yeah. what I like to ask is for people to explain if you have any tattoos. You know, mine is a tattoo of my skyline of Seattle because no matter where I'm at, no matter where I go, Seattle's always home. I always have memories there. It's what made me the man I am today. So many different things that I'm grateful for. So I would say that tattoo means a lot to me. Now I have my family tattooed me, but before that, I would say Seattle just because it's a reminder of home. It's a reminder of my family, my friends, what it took to get through where I was at to be where I am today. Yeah. So um, what would you say for you? Me, I got one on my arm. I got a, a version of me jumping through a cloud and the sky is the limit. I got that. That was my first one when I was uh, 17 and I moved, uh, moved away to Ontario. Um, the last one I got was a massive one on my back. You, you guys know it. I don't need to show it to you, but you see that or no? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that one is a, is a mural of, uh, of my parents. Um, and the interesting part about that was I, I didn't have any, a lot of the pictures were burned in the fire. So I had a couple of pictures and they were burned on the edges, but I had an artist in Grand Canaria sketch their faces. And then I had a picture of uncle in the middle and they kind of form a heart and they live in us in memory. Um, 
we were off because we didn't make the King's Cup. So on a Wednesday, you guys would understand this. They had tattoos. Tony, you got tattoos too, right? Yeah, I have two. So on a Wednesday, I did all the outlines. And you're supposed to wait like, what, three weeks, a month, mm -hmm. right? So I was six and a half hours on the outlines. And I was bent over. And I'm in middle of the season. So, you know, you're down a bit of weight. There's not much on the back to begin with. And then I went back on Friday and I got the rest of the tattoo done and every itch and he was shaking on the faces and every itch of it was like, it was kind of, I guess, a piece of me to, you know, just a tribute to my parents and uncle for everything they meant to me and, and just so that they live there and I'm carrying their weight on my back. So that's, that's what it is to me. But when you talk about home, I think we all feel that niche to something and, 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 and if you forget, I've never changed. Like I hate when money changes people. I've never changed when I, when I, when I got things and I never will. And I, things like that can't change me. I find, and I said that, and I strongly believe you can never judge someone because you never know what they're battling with. And I, I hope I'm the guy there. Like I'll always approach. I give anybody the time. Like I was just out getting ice cream and I was signing autograph people blowing the horn. My wife was, who, who was that? I was like, I don't know. They just waved at me. So I'm waving back at them. Like, I just, I just try to give people the time to make them feel as special as they make me feel. Anyways, Carl, man, obviously we really, really appreciate you coming on and chopping it up with us. Uh, to all the listeners out there, man, I cannot stress enough. Basketball player, fisherman, office worker, buy this book. It's, it's to anybody going through anything. It teaches you about, dealing with adversity just it's it's such a touching and moving and heartfelt book i highly recommend it and actually we're going to uh do a giveaway we're going to give away a free uh signed copy of the book signed by carl uh to one of our listeners or subscribers out there again i, I can't i can't rave enough about the book it's i, I get emotional talking about it just because it's that heartfelt so Please go buy it. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it. You can download it on the internet. Plenty of websites you can purchase the book on, but I highly recommend doing so. And again, Carl, we really, really appreciate you coming on and chopping it up. We could probably go do this for another three or four hours, but uh, sure. I think we'd all be divorced at this point. <laughs> it was, uh, guys, it was my pleasure. I knew this would be one of the easiest I've done. Just, just great chopping it up with you guys again. And it, really takes me back to the locker room in, in Alba, man. I'm not even joking. So it was, it was awesome. You guys are awesome. I think, I think it's going to be a hit. I mean, two of you guys are great at what you do. Wonderful careers, but I think you just met so many people. And I think this is way kind of a path, especially, I think, you know, what it could be as well, it'd be a great uh, inspiration as well to young players that have no idea what they're about to go into and to understand that, you know, Europe is, is a great avenue and it's not, NBA is not just the end of it all. So anyway, good luck with everything. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks again, Carl. All right, boys.